My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hello, my listeners. This is Aaron Odom coming to you again from Trident Theater here in Sheridan, Wyoming. And we are doing another episode of Euripides Humanities. Today, I have a very fun friend of mine who we have been working closely the last several years together in different little projects here and there. My listeners, I want to introduce you to Mr. Zach Schneider. Hello, Zach. Hello. Good to see you again, my friend. So, Zach, it's been quite a year. Uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about what you do. I mean, I know what you do, but, you know, uh, there might be some people out there going, who, who does this person know? He knows all these different people. <laughs> sure. Uh, I am currently the theater educator at Matrona County High School in Casper, Wyoming. We are home of International Thespian Society Troop Number One. Number One. Number one, and uh, I'm also the chapter director for Wyoming Thespians, and just an all-around theater-loving guy. Yep, and that has been the primary nexus of our work over the last few years. Um, I have contributed to the uh, what was Wyoming State Drama, now is the Wyoming Thespian Festival, is that right? Uh, yep. Wyoming State Thespian Festival. We had a right. couple of... Uh, nervous educators that didn't want our acronym to be WTF. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. And plus, I think Mark Marin has that trademark. So. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I don't know if Marin would do it, but he might take down a high school troop. I don't know. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I've, I've worked in that over the last several years, uh, you know, doing workshops and helping give students critique and things like that. I think it's a really cool function that, that happens there. But of course, this year has been wildly different. I, I enjoyed, you know, I enjoy every different type of way that we're trying to keep this thing going, this, this theater thing, you know, I mean, uh, it's one of those things that everybody's been saying has been dying for the last 2,500 years and it's still not dead. Um, but this year, this year it took a serious blow. It, it did its best to try to kill it, didn't it? Mm -hmm. So what, what has been going on with your troop? How have you guys been staying afloat and staying positive and looking towards the future or just how do we keep this going right now? Sure. Uh, well, in Wyoming, I guess we've been lucky or maybe a little more reckless in that uh, we've been <laughs> in school the whole time. 
Uh, yeah. You started back in at the end of August and have been masked up and been asked to social distance as much as possible. Um, earlier this year, I had uh, my advanced theater class. We did uh, Antigone and Ooh. recorded it. It hasn't gotten up on the uh, on the internet yet, but we're hoping it will be soon. We did our Thespian Festival online where the students recorded their pieces and then uploaded them uh, onto the internet and our judges adjudicated. So we had some semblance of a, of a festival there. And Matrona County High School just started rehearsals for our musical. We're working on The Little Mermaid. So Ooh. we're, you know, we're, we're hoping that our numbers will stay down and we'll be able mm -hmm. to, uh, to get through this production. But, you know, it's, it, it's been a day-by-day -day process. Right. Now, for your production, what kind of precautions are you taking for your performers on stage? Uh, we'll be using the uh, reopening guide that the Educational Theater Association put out at the beginning of the year. Staggered call times with students, uh, masks backstage, sanitizing before and after every show. I still haven't decided on whether or not my students are going to have masks when we perform. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm waiting to see what, what our numbers look like. We have till May to, to figure that out. Right, um, right. We'll be having at least one in-person performance that we'll record and put up on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, if at all possible, I'd like to do three in-person performances and record each of those and then uh, put it up uh, the next weekend. That's been one nice thing about this, this whole pandemic is before I would have instructors come to me and say, can't we just record this and put it up on the internet or live stream it? And I've had to tell them, well, you know, Pesky rights holders don't like having it available up there. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, when they're faced with, let's see, Broadway is closed. Uh, most regional professional theater is closed. So mm -hmm. what is our moneymaker? Oh, yes. High schools. Uh, right. They've been, <laughs> they've been a lot more accommodating to, uh, to our needs to, to put things on the internet. So that, oh, right. that's been one nice thing, I guess, about a, a silver lining about this whole thing. Well, it kind of makes me wonder too, if that's going to continue. Frankly, is that not just another stream of revenue? Not, I mean, it, it's it, for, for a playwright going, no, you, you should only be able to see this on the stage. That just seems like you're limiting yourself. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I had conversations, I remember, remember before this with uh, theater professionals where I would argue that we should have more um, theater that's available over the internet. And, and for me, it's because I'm teaching theater in the middle of Wyoming where the right. closest equity theater is five hours away. Mm -hmm. My students, a vast majority of them have never seen professional theater. Right, right. And, and so the only way to do that is through video. And, and they've told me, oh, there's no way that's going to happen. Or, it's not the same as being in the room. And, and I think, you know, Hamilton this summer being released on Disney Plus oh. shows that there's a revenue for it. Um, Come From Away is going to be recording their performance and putting it out there. So, yep. you know, my hope is that, that this will open that up so that folks who can't make it to professional theater either because of uh, maybe ability or, or access or distance um, will be able to. And right. I, I right. Hopeful. 
I mean, and frankly, you know, like it does. It. I don't associate Sweeney Todd with only Johnny Depp. <laughs> oh no! In fact, I tell my students stay away from that version. Let's watch. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let's watch the recorded one. Uh, you got to right. you got to see uh, Angela Lansbury and was it George Hearn that was? It was in George that? Hearn in that one. Yeah, and it was the second one. I think it was not the Len Carew, which I always was like, that's way bloody American. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of you know theater professionals and um, you know people in the business, um, interesting. We got to that point. It, it's weird how. And I'm not trying to gear the conversations in these episodes this way, but um, it's a perfect segue right into where we're going today. So, Zach, I'll ask you this to get the episode started. When you think of famous American theater producers, what are some names that come to mind? Uh, Gower Champion, Mm -hmm. Hal Prince. Hal Prince, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein right. they, they ushered in the whole golden age through through their writing, but then they're producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those those are the big ones in my head. Right, right. Well, the one I want to discuss today, this is one of those little snippets in theater history that, you know, gets maybe put in a textbook here and there. And then you go, wow, that's kind of neat. And you deep dive and you're like, Oh my God. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's discuss one such famous producer whose name doesn't come up all that much. While it was on display for quite some time, there is a blood-stained cuff of a woman's dress in the vaults of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Certainly, there might be many such items that have a significant connection to something in America's history, but... This particular cuff belonged to one of the greatest theater producers this country has ever seen. So, let's meet this person, shall we? On July 20th, 1826, Tomas and Jane Moss gave birth to a daughter, Mary Frances Moss, in Winchester, England. Mary was their fourth and youngest child. Not too terribly much is known about Mary's childhood. However, we do know that her father was most likely treated with some level of respect in the community, and that Mary's aunt was the well-known actor Elizabeth Yates. Ringing any bells? I thought I saw something earlier this week uh, about her on the internet somewhere. It, it oh, Yates? Brain, but, but yeah, <laughs> keep going. Well, Yates was known for a multitude of performances at both Drury Lane and at Covent Garden, and for being married to Frederick Yates, another Drury Lane actor. Did she know the Muffin Man? She might have. She might have. Uh, I think he was at least hanging out in the green room. Um, (laughs) We do know that in 1844, at age 18, Mary was wed to an officer in the British Army, Henry Wellington Taylor, who is also known as John. I don't know where you get that out of Henry Wellington. Yeah, John. No, no. John. Okay, sure. John was the godson of the Duke of Wellington, so this was a nice arrangement for both of them. John was 27 when they were married. The couple bore two daughters, Emma in 1846 and Clara in 1849. Okay. Now, once John was discharged from the army, he followed in his father's footsteps to establish his own tavern at home, which started out well. However... Soon he after, at a tavern at home. Well, no, I mean, like he he returned home from. Oh, from okay. His, I, I was going to say that's yeah. that's the perfect <laughs> cover for a raging alcoholic. 
No, nobody was here. But we had just as much alcohol gone as if we were full. I know. I made money, honey. <laughs> Don't ask. Don't ask. Now, however, soon after, things got a little rocky. And it sounds as though the tavern left the family in massive amounts of debt. While records don't indicate specifically what the crime was, John was soon arrested in 1850 and was sentenced to the then prison island of Australia, leaving Mary alone to care for her children as an unemployed single mother. Okay. <laughs> I saw your eyebrows raising there. For, for, well, no, I, it was, you know, you, you mentioned Sweeney Todd earlier, and I was right? thinking, oh, prison colony in Australia. Right, yeah. Okay. No, no, but yeah, I mean, no, but, you no know, judge raped Mary and no, like, no, okay. no, no, but I mean, still, that's that's significant, you know. That wasn't a okay, we'll fine you, or you know, you get twenty days in the tower or something like that. Sure, no, we're, you're going to Australia. We're kicking you out of the country and putting you on the other side of the world. <laughs> and so, Mary, yeah, there she is unemployed single mother. Now, being so young, Mary was worried about how to take care of her children, having no formal education, and no source of income. Her mother and her aunt came to her rescue. Her mother, Jane, took in the two young girls, and the girls affectionately referred to their grandmother thereafter as Auntie. Aww. Aww. As far as income, Mary's aunt offered her a job working with her in the theater as an apprentice. Now, keep in mind, up to this point in history, there had been a long-standing social displeasure about those who chose acting as a profession. While some were able to rise above the social stigma, many still saw the judgment similar to that reserved for circus performers or sex workers. Even if actors were considered a little above those professions, they were still pretty close. So Mary's in this difficult position of being a single mother in the 1850s, which was, you know, more or less verboten. Sure. She didn't want to bring any of that stigma on her family, but Aunt Elizabeth came up with a good solution. Go full bore into acting as a career and create a stage name. Sounded like a good solution. And thus, Mary Frances Moss became Laura Keene. Okay. I, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't ring a bell yet. Oh, this is great. This is great then. Because, uh, yeah. All right. Now, Laura got her first acting job performing in the play The Lady of Lyons, in 1851 as the primary ingenue. She was a natural. Critics and theater professionals went bananas over her, commenting on her ability to command the stage without being overwhelming and her natural grace. This caught the attention of many, and soon after, she was invited to work under one Madame Vestris, who was a prominent female theater artist of the time. Yeah, because if, if, if you want people to not think you're a sex worker, look <laughs> for somebody named Madame. Madam, and yes. and and the name Vestris, like that sounds almost like a Sith name in a way. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah, 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 yeah. Madam Vestris. <laughs> <laughs> now, having been an actor in the game for quite a while herself, Madam Vestris also moonlighted as a producer and company manager, which Laura found pretty interesting. I mean, that in itself is like, well, you're taking care of a business. Right. So yeah, and, and even I mean, how progressive? I mean, you're talking 1850s, and this lady's mm -hmm. own producer and director, and yeah, she's working the show. Good right, for her, right? And this is London too, so yeah. it was a little bit more advanced, I guess. You know, now 
In less than a year performing in the UK, Laura was able to make a decent amount of money and catch international attention for her work. In 1852, she was offered to work for Mr. James William Wallach at his theater in New York City. Laura couldn't resist the opportunity and promptly received the blessing of her mother. So Laura's daughter stayed with Laura's mother in the UK and Laura went to America. Within her first few performances in New York, critics continued to echo the praise she had received back home. It was a quote, she has a natural and unstagey style, admirable articulation, and a winning voice. Unstagey. Right? <laughs> I, I want that tagline on all of my posters. It's very unstagey. Very unstagey. Seems so natural. <laughs> like, and, they and, didn't... and this is before Stanislavski, too, right? Right. It's yeah, like, exactly. Like, I mean, I mean, he's bopping around the same time, so... Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but for critics to be like, this was decidedly unstagey. And I preferred that. Yes. <laughs> Yet, not even a year later, Laura followed in the footsteps of her mentor, Madame Vestris, and left Wallach's company. By this time, she had become acquainted with a wealthy man named John Lutz, who inspired her to take more ownership of her career. So, upon leaving Wallach's company, Laura moved to Baltimore to lease the Charles Street Theater. There, she did continue acting, but also filled the roles of producer and director, as she had been making a significant amount of money in her short career thus far. By this time, she could afford to bring her mother and daughters to join her in the States. Less than a year. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) Right? You know, in Baltimore, I mean, I I guess. You know, you never hear about the up-and-coming theaters of Baltimore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you never know, like, that might be where something workshopped, you know. That could be... Out of town, tryouts. Yeah, this is where Annie opened, you know, in 1979. And then we took it to Broadway three weeks later. Now, for Laura, new markets began opening up. The California gold rush was in full swing, and Laura saw incredible opportunity out west. Once her lease expired with the Charles Street Theater, she relocated to California in spring of 1854 and was hired by Catherine Horton Sinclair, another powerful female producer. In fact, I saw something that said, like, both of them started their producing careers around, like, almost on the same day. Huh. That's it's just like It's just like the one day that it was like, okay, women can be producers now. Go. Ladies, come on in. (laughs) Catherine hired Laura to play opposite the famous actor Edwin Booth, who came from a large and well-known theater family, though Edwin was arguably the most famous. Edwin was famous. Uh, Well, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Now, Edwin was famous for his Shakespearean roles, and and he was contracted to play individual roles in individual cities. So it would be like, you know, they'd say, here in Chicago, come see Edwin play Romeo, or come see Edwin play King Lear. Now, in one famous production, he actually played opposite his two brothers, who were also actors, in Julius Caesar, where Edwin played Marcus Brutus and his brothers played Mark Antony and Cassius. That performance funded a statue of Shakespeare to be erected, and that statue still stands in Central Park. So who who played uh, Brutus? Mm, I think his brother, John. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. You're never... starting to kind of pick up on some things here. Yep. Some, yep. Some, okay. However, Edwin's most memorable role was in 1864, his 100 Nights Hamlet, which quite literally was the same play performed over 100 consecutive nights. 
So like he played like the whole play a hundred times or was yeah. it like, here's a little bit tonight and come back tomorrow <laughs> if you want to see the next scene. <laughs> the next scene. No, it was the same play 100 nights consecutively. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at that time it was like, wow, what stamina, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah. You know, meanwhile, meanwhile, Phantom's been going for 80 years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but God, we got to see that chandelier. Back to the gold rush. Edwin and War Laura worked quite well together. While there, Laura started another producing side hustle by leasing the Union Theater in San Francisco, but only ran that operation for a month because Catherine had approached Laura with the idea of touring Australia with Edwin as Australia was experiencing their own gold rush. Is this going to be like a, a, a long lost reunited love story? Oh, not really. Not oh, really, okay. but we are getting there. Okay. <laughs> Seeing yet another opportunity to increase her international acclaim and make quite a bit of scratch, Laura jumped at the chance. The tour went quite well and all three made a significant amount of money. It was also suggested that during this tour, Laura and Edwin most likely started a romantic relationship. Yeah. Just a little bit. I saw that coming. I... I really enjoy seeing people who fall in love with their stage partners. A little it's, bit of Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie action going yeah, on. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wait, we, we were just playing it, and it was just so real. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, the connection was so fantastic. And you're like, no, well, maybe. I, I, you know, I, I guess I never understood that. I, I had very few roles where I got to play the love interest anyway. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can understand it. You're, you're, th this is the only person you're around for however long you're on tour with these people, you know. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I guess it happens. Sure. I guess, yeah. I, you know, and it's the worst, though, being a director, especially in high school. <laughs> Because you know that it's all hormones and that it's not going to last. And then, God, I hope they stay together at least through opening night. Just right. Give me full opening night. Because if they break up, then it's just the worst. Oh, man. Okay. Now, back to Laura and Edwin in Australia. Now, like I said, they may have started a relationship. And this may have been the reason that while on tour in Australia, Laura attempted to find her wayward husband who was still there. Because you got to get the divorce. Right. Yep. Okay. Now, the two had still been married because since John had been sent there and Laura intended to find him. Now, reports are conflicted on exactly what happened. Most reports suggest that Laura was intent on fighting John in order to declare her intentions to divorce, like he suggested. Some reports claim that she never found him and returned home once the tour was done. Other reports indicate that Laura and John did cross paths. And when presented with the idea of divorce... John simply refused and disappeared. <laughs> what are you holding on to, man? You've been married to somebody on the other side of the planet for the last six years. <laughs> sure. I guess, you know, in his mind, you know, he didn't have to divorce her. Right. Right. Well, right. well, well what was the impetus for him to? He can yeah, right. So his oats all over Australia. <laughs> now, nonetheless, John and Laura remained uh, married until she received words of John's death when he died in 1860. So, I'm sure yay! She 1860, yeah. you're now a widow. Okay, back to the Australian tour. Edwin had quite a well-known problem with alcohol, and the tour ended due to his prosaic whims while drunk. <laughs> prosaic whims while drunk. Is that meaning he just went on stage drunk too many times? I think it is sometimes, yeah. 
like and and you know would make wild claims like you can't do this show without me you know just okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. getting just hammered and kind of like that stint that russell crowe had where he was like you don't deserve my best personality the actor you always want to work with i played hamlet a hundred nights in a row <laughs> so edwin catherine and laura returned to california and edwin and laura's relationship fizzled out laura began managing uh, the American Theater in San Francisco, where she also performed. She held that function for the better part of two years. Now, this one blows my mind. It's estimated that she was earning around $50,000 a year, which you calculate. That's, yeah. Keep, tell me, what's the, what's the inflation of that? Calculates to about $1.7 today. Boom. She, she would have been around 28 at the time. God, the people who do all this stuff, you know, Orson Welles, by the time he's 28, he's <laughs> Citizen Kane, you know. Well, I mean. a theater worth a million dollars a year. Right? No education. Single woman. Did this pretty much on her own. Good for her. Right? Yeah. However, the stint in California soon came to a close. You see, local governments still took some umbrage with theater and therefore declared any art form uh, or any form of entertainment illegal to be performed on the sabbath illegal so so if you perform on the sabbath it's illegal sure sure uh yeah eight, <laughs> you know it's eight performances a week twice right. on sunday it's a good thing yeah. we don't worry about that anymore right exactly so this hit laura's uh, profits pretty hard so she returned to new york Upon her return, Laura leased the Metropolitan Theater and served as an actor, producer, and theater manager. She also had significant sway over the technical elements of production, including set design and decoration. She also had the theater remodeled using her own funds and renamed the show and the venue Laura Keene's Varieties. So there might be plays, there might be song and dance, it's kind of a vaudeville kind of thing. So she's like doing follies before Zigfield ever showed up, huh? Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. cool. However, due to perceived rivalry or not, the producer William Burton bought the theater out from under her and ended her lease, even after she invested thousands of her own personal money into the venue. It's oh, exactly uh, why he did it. <laughs> can't see. Can't see a sister doing it for herself. He's oh yeah. I mean, swoop in and take it over. Mm -hmm. I didn't really include this in here because I couldn't find it again, but like she, she had sets burned on like opening night. Like somebody just snuck in and just, you know, trashed her stuff, but she just went, okay, I guess we'll go up with what we got and still put on shows and, and killed it. That's amazing Good mm -hmm. for her. No. Did, okay. Can you imagine having a rivalry with somebody that, that, big that you're sneaking into their theater and trashing their stuff. <laughs> yeah, right? Spielberg, you want to do a West Side Story? I'll give you a West Side Story. <laughs> but I'm going to sneak into the high school across town and <laughs> stop it. They, they listen to this too. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Not to be put down. Even though she had been kicked out of the venue, she basically brought back to life. Laura gathered her own group of sponsors and in response, purchased property, hired an architect, and had her own theater built at 622 Broadway, which at the time, she simply named it Laura Keene's Theater. 
Good for her. Yep. This also became the first Olympic theater, which then I think was bought again and became the first Winter Garden theater. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Winter Garden moved somewhere else. And that's where, that's where I, oh, talk about that. Talk about like some cool new thing coming and then somebody buys it out. Beetlejuice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know killing it people loved it and then somebody went oh no Hugh Jackman wants to come back and do Music Man right right and then you see what happens pandemic hits boom yeah you've got your big old Hugh Jackman Sutton Foster Music Man sign up there but you don't get to play oh they were still rehearsing though I love seeing like that those defeated videos of rehearsal they're like well we're we got it pretty good (laughs) are we ever gonna I don't know Let's run through it again. <laughs> sure, sure. Oh. Now, Laura Keene's theater opened in 1856, and she relocated the varieties there. And for the next seven years, Laura made some pretty impressive contributions to the production of theater, which are still in use today. First off, Laura basically introduced the idea of a long production run to the American stage. Now, at the time, it was fairly unusual for a play to have a run passed around a dozen performances, most, most likely due to logistics, because the, the fact is that production companies had to rent the space. That was a huge part of their overhead. Now, Laura, owning her own space and producing her own shows and starring in her own shows, she was able to launch plays that could have a considerable staying power. Now, she was actually kind of used to this because this was actually the practice in London to have really long production runs. So with her production of a play called The Elves, Laura astonished American critics and theater patrons alike by being able to launch a run that ended with 50 performances. 50 performances. Look 50. Cool. I yeah. mean, you know, when you're talking, that's at least four times what they're used to. Sure. So you know, I, I never understood uh, it when people wanted short runs, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you've already put the money in, you made the costumes, you built the set. I mean... <laughs> Every, every performance over, you know, say performance 12 is gravy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and then you always hear those people like, oh, I didn't get a chance to go see it. And you're like, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but always wanted to set the bar even higher. Laura ran a production of a play called The Seven Sisters in 1860, which featured fantastically ornate sets and ran for a record 253 performances. 253. Boom. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Five months, I think, is said it, that thing ran. Now, I'm also going to throw this in there, because, but I couldn't find a lot of information about it, but I still think it's really cool. And yes, I'm going to extrapolate things. Uh, apparently, that's what you can do with historicism. <laughs> but at the time, uh, the time of its invention and the suspected reason for its creation kind of point to Laura as the creator of the idea of the matinee performance. So they didn't do matinees before this? Nope. Look at all that money they're leaving on the table. Right, right. Now, here's here's the reason. A lot of women did appreciate attending theater, and there might have been many who would not be in the company of men, or at least a man who could protect them safely at night. So the matinee was created, and the matinee allowed women to attend theater during a time when they could leave safely upon the play's conclusion. Like. Tell so me it, a female theater producer didn't come up with that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. My wife, uh, you know, constantly says, you need to build in a matinee, you know, just because, <laughs> because you know, the, 
stay, she's the one who stays up with the kids and does yeah. all that work. And you know, if you want, if you want moms and you want kids to come see a show, mm-hmm. you got to do it during the day. These these eight o'clock curtains are too, too late. Right. So, right. So with Times Square, I mean, going back a couple of weeks when you were talking about the Deuce. Oh yeah. I'm guessing Times Square was still pretty a rowdy place. Or I guess it wasn't Times Square then, right? Yeah, at that time it was, honestly, at that time, I think it was still kind of a, uh, an agricultural hub. It it wasn't really an old West kind of town or anything. It was just, you know. Rough, rough dudes who were hanging out in that. There might have, yeah, there might have been, but, you know, I mean, it's just like any city where there's like street crime at night, you know. Okay. Yeah. But what could be considered Laura's most significant contribution is also tied to her unfortunately infamous place in history. And this is where we take a big turn. (laughs) Okay. She would forever be associated with a single play. Laura acquired a copy of a script, much like some of the sentimental comedies, which were still being performed in London. Laura saw how the script could be performed for an American audience. The original script came from England and poked fun at what the British considered American underdevelopment, basically hillbillies, and that that they were representative of America in general. Laura saw the potential for American audiences to appreciate a play like this, but obviously needed to change some things. I see those wheels turning in your head. It's coming. It's coming, yep. Therefore, she basically rewrote one of the roles so that the story now comically criticized British aristocracy, basically snobbishness, and made it seem as though that were the primary trait among British people. Laura debuted play in her theater in 1858, where it ran for the next five months. So she's basically pulling what America has done with every British import. I mean, you've got right. what's pulling, you know, oh, yes. they, Balti Towers, they try that over here, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. British shows that were popular and then you throw an American spin on it. And, right, you know, right. Open uh, it the Office. The Office. Yeah, yeah. I loved Ricky's The Office. I loved it. Because I have it not was, seen it yet. I need to. It was so succinct. Two yeah. seasons, they told the story. Done. But then right. in, the, in, in America, it's like, no, we get sponsored for this. So, you know, we got to keep it going. And so we're going to invent things that, yeah. Although anyway. I will say my, my daughter is 12 and she is, uh, she's probably seen the American office all the way through eight, nine times. Oh so, yeah. You know, I mean, when, when, when you want to keep your kids busy, I guess nine seasons <laughs> of the office. is a good <laughs> There you go. Now about this play. Critics and audiences went mad for it. Word again traveled to markets outside of New York, which then caught the interest of tourists. People would actually plan trips to New York specifically to see Laura's play. Laura soon saw further economic potential in this play. Now, remember her work in the California and Australia gold rushes. She knew smaller markets and what they would pay to see. Therefore, Laura invented the Broadway touring production. The tour. That's a, uh, the matinee and the touring production. And the tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the long run. All Laura. <laughs> so basically, this woman set, like, set the foundation for the entire economic generation of New York City for the next 150 years. Yeah, yeah. They all went, wow, those are great ideas. Let's do those. Sure. Okay. Just just came up with it, went, huh, I bet I can make some money doing that. And 
And I never, well, I'll get to this later. Uh, I never heard anything about her, like launching any kind of rivalries. You know, there wasn't like, she wasn't out to get any of her competitors at all. Like I said, you know, she worked with this woman in California who was a producer. Uh, sure. She just kind of did some projects on her own on the side. It wasn't people, like people were fighting her, right? I'm going to buy right. your computer out from under you. And... Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Now, Laura. now Laura uh, would perform in this play and then got seen all over the country. Laura toured in this production for the next seven years. That's amazing. Right? You know, she's, she's basically, it was her Jesus Christ superstar, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. Okay. And she was able to leave the management of her theater on Broadway to her two daughters who joined the business. So here's this woman training her next generation of powerful f- female artists. That's outstanding. Awesome. Why, why don't we have the, what, what, I, and I, what's her last name again? Laura? Keen. K-E-E-N-E. How come we don't have the Keen Theater in New York? We still have the Booth Theater, you know. Right, and yeah. That guy got drunk and left her in California. Right, yeah. Now, oh, and plus, Laura had uh, married her longtime financial partner and, and advisor, John Lutz, in 1860. Remember those two? Her husband died in 1860. She marries this guy in 1860. I love it. Yep. She's yep. like, I got the telegram. Let's go down to the courthouse. The title of this play was Our American Cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking. Uh, yep. One with the American Cousin. Okay. Oh, man. In 1865, Laura had begun to tire of the touring life. So the performance on April 14th was going to be her last performance of Our American Cousin and thus end the tour. The final performance was to take place in Washington, D.C. at Ford's Theater. In the advertising, Laura's name was just as big as the title of the play and touted that she had performed in the play over a thousand times. And since this would be her last performance, she would be getting a special cut of the profits as a benefit performance. This was something of a custom for an actor retiring a role. So going to this play is kind of like, I'll never forget it. Like when we were growing up, like David Caruso's last episode of NYPD Blue and like everybody tuned in, right? It was a huge event. Michael Scott's last episode of The Office. Yes, yes. You're like, whoa, this is huge. This is going to be a huge thing. Five days prior to the performance, General Robert E. Lee had surrendered his soldiers to the Union Army, effectively beginning the end of the Civil War. President Abraham Lincoln had spent the last five days quickly wrapping up some loose ends and was reported to be the happiest he had been in years. Absolutely. Yep. On April 14th... Celebrate by going to the theater. (laughs) On April 14th, 1865, he chose to celebrate and relax by going to a play. He had announced to the newspapers that day which immediately went into print that the play he was going to see was Our American Cousin. Now, as you might know, President and Mrs. Lincoln were not the only patrons in the box seats at Ford's Theater. The Lincolns were accompanied by Major Henry Rathbone and his wife. Lincoln had also announced to the papers that morning that they were going to be accompanied by General Ulysses Grant and his wife, Julia. However, at the last moment, Grant sent a message that he wouldn't be attending that evening. While Lincoln understood that one of his top generals needed a night off, the truth was that Julia Grant didn't like Mrs. Lincoln very much and really didn't want to sit by her for the entirety of a play. <laughs> I just, just, just write him and say, I, you know, woman problems. Yeah, it's going to be. The house was 
packed that night when the curtain rose at 7.30. Patrons may have been there to see Laura in her last performance, but they also might have been there to sneak a peek at their long-beleaguered and now-relieved commander-in-chief. The Lincolns and the Rathbones unfortunately arrived to the theater late, and the performance had already begun. When the party arrived, they took their place in the box seat, which overlooked stage right, and couldn't have been more than about 15 feet from the stage floor. Even in the middle of the performance, when Laura noticed President Lincoln arrive, she ad-libbed a line which instructed the orchestra to play Hail to the Chief and for the audience to stand and applaud their president. Just break into the middle of it and Hail to the Chief. And, okay. Yeah. It's not like Patti Lapone over the last couple of years being like, don't take pictures and turn off your cell phones. Look, Mr. Lincoln, take off that hat. Yeah, no, no. She was just like, you know, it just came so naturally. Oh, Mr. Wooner, and we really should have a song honoring the president. Yeah, yeah, okay. And there he was. And he waved to the crowd, and he was just like, wow, this feels great. Then the play resumed. One report stated that the sound of cheers and applause for the president was so powerful and memorable that it only could be equaled by the sounds of what would happen later in the same building that night. Yeah. <laughs> Near the end of the performance, President Lincoln stood to adjust the draperies of the box seat. As he did so, a silent intruder stepped into the box. The intruder was able to do so because Lincoln's personal bodyguard had slipped out to have a pint at a pub down the street. God, could you imagine being that guy? <laughs> Tim, the president was shot. What? Or, or you, you show back up and, and the whole theater's in bedlam and you're like, wait, what? What happened? <laughs> I, I was in the bathroom. I was really sick. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have eaten that mutton earlier. <laughs> right through me. The intruder drew a Derringer pistol and shot President Lincoln in the back of the head. The entire crowd immediately reacted with shock and terror. Rathbone stood to attack the assailant, but the assailant drew a dagger and slashed Rathbone across the midsection. Or is it like the midsection or the arm? I can't remember. Was, but he got him. Now, I, and this might be apocryphal, but I read somewhere that, that Booth knew the play so well that he knew when to time the shot during a laugh line. Yep. So that it wouldn't, that it would, it would cover up the, the the sound of the, the, the pistol shot. Well, yes and no. He, yeah, he was so well-versed in that play because he basically lived at Ford's Theater right then. Okay. I mean, he got his mail there. <laughs> huh. Yeah, and so when he heard the president was going to be there that night, he, I mean, he, I'm going to get into it a little bit later, but okay. like he, he knew it. Like he even carved a peephole in the door of the box seat so he could tell when he could see the president clear line it's going to be perfect okay determined yeah having dispatched the president the assailant jumped down onto the stage where he yelled six semper tyrannis meaning thus always to tyrants and made his way across to the stage door standing in the wings awaiting her next entrance near the stage door was laura who had witnessed the entire event as the assailant approached, she immediately recognized John Wilkes Booth, the younger brother of her old stage partner, Edwin Booth. A2, John A. Yep. Yeah. As he got closer, Laura stepped aside so he could exit through the stage door to his escape pony, which was waiting outside. Okay. The, the conspiracy theorist in my head right now is going, mm -hmm. okay, look at all of these coincidences that had to happen to make this work, right? Oh, my God. Well, yeah. Ulysses S. Grant stayed home. 
Yep. Right? You know, I mm-hmm. mean, if there had been two dudes in there, they probably would have wrestled this guy to the ground or, or at least noticed, oh, look, I mean, there, there's something wrong here. You've got the guard who, who conveniently went <laughs> down to get a pint, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got Keen who's standing in the wings who conveniently steps aside Ooh. so John Wilkes Booth can get out. It, there, this is a conspiracy that goes to the highest levels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm going to become a Lincoln truther. <laughs> We're going to have to get into that because uh, uh, one thing I want to end this with has, uh, has some of that. And it, it, oh, it's great. Oh. Once the door was shut, Laura looked out at the panic in the crowd and steeled herself. She stepped out onto the stage to shout to the crowd in an effort to calm the patrons down, but to little avail. However, she did at least help them figure out how to leave the theater in a calm and orderly fashion, or at least an orderly fashion. They were still going bananas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But all the, the whole time she's doing this from the stage. Like, there's a door, there's a door. If you're going to scream, do it in the aisles, but just do it in an orderly fashion and get out. She invented the pre-flight safety. You know, <laughs> right? Your exits are on either side. Now, meanwhile, Dr. Charles Leal had made his way up to the president's box and saw that the president had been badly injured, but still had some signs of life in him. He called out above the crowd to have someone bring the president some water. Laura heard the cry, ran to her dressing room where she knew she had a pitcher of water and made her way up to the box. In fact, it it was like, I saw this very detailed report of like, she found the stage manager or like, uh, you know, an assistant stage manager. She's like, how do I get up to the president's box? He's like, oh, okay, perfect. And took her through like this, like almost labyrinthine little passageway that went like downstairs and then upstairs and then just opened a door out into the hallway. And it was like six feet from the president's box door. So he was just, they hardly had to get by anybody. Leave it to the theater person, though, to be, you know, <laughs> calm, the director, yeah. you know, who's calm and collected saying, oh, yeah, I've got water. Everybody else is going crazy. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, she's, you know, got it all collected and knows yep. what to do. It's yep. because she's a theater professional. See, yep. kids, that's, why, that's mm-hmm. why we do this. Yep. Now, she made her way to the box and asked Dr. Leo what she could do. And by this time, the doctor had realized that president's, uh, the president's wounds were, in fact, fatal. But he told her the wounds need to be bathed. Taking stock of the situation in front of her, Laura saw what she needed to do. Now, it's not quite known what Mrs. Lincoln was doing. She was still there. But some reports say that she was hysterical and shrieking in the corner. Others state that she was just in a state of shock and still in the corner. Regardless, she was of no help. No. So Laura took the pitcher of water and requested to take the president's head in her lap. She was given permission to do so. And until further help arrived, Laura sat on the floor of the box seat, bathing the president's wounds with his head in her lap. And soon, more men came to assist with moving the president across the street to a boarding house where he was pronounced dead the following morning. When the president was removed, Laura looked down at her dress and saw that it was soaked in blood. Laura ended the night and did not return to the stage for several years. While Laura was able to find some success in managing a theater in Philadelphia, years later, she never once was able to match the success she once attained. Can you imagine that that first performance back? Oh, God. Right? I had a friend of mine who we were doing like a preview night for a community theater, and it was just a preview night, right? You Mm -hmm. invite the patrons in, you get them to donate some money, you show them some snippets of the next season. 
And in the in the middle of a, the the preview scene he was doing, he forgot his line, right? Ah. Uh, and uh, I mean, choke. And the guy like walked out of the theater and didn't come back for oh, it was it was a good long time, right? <laughs> and uh, could you imagine that that first performance oh. back after something like that? Oh. I mean, you're like, you're putting your makeup on and you're like, I was in a, I had to get my pitcher of water from a dressing room, just like the one I'm in right now. Sure, sure. Do I have the water ready? Just in case there's an assassination. (laughs) Just in case there's another assassination. Now, as you were suggesting, there seemed to be something of like a perfect mixture of circumstances. There are quite a few conflicting reports about the evening of the president's murder. You see, John Wilkes Booth had been planning something like this for quite a while. In March of 1865, just a month before, he had been planning a kidnapping in which he would have kidnapped the president as he attended another play, but the president decided to stay home that night. You see, John was, like we said, he was an actor as well and quite the popular one. Many considered him to be one of the most handsome men in America, but growing up on a plantation which enslaved people, he had it out against Lincoln from a very young age. When he learned that the president would be attending Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater, he quickly developed a plot not only to kill Lincoln, but also Vice President Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State William Seward, effectively removing the top three members of the executive branch. Booth was the only successful assassin. Andrew Johnson's assailant lost his nerve at the last minute and went to a bar and cried about it. William Seward's assailant, Lewis Powell, actually made it into Seward's home And after stabbing Seward and several others in his attempt to kill Seward, Powell escaped, but was caught soon after and hanged after a speedy trial. Booth was found in a barn in Virginia 12 days after the assassination and was shot in the neck when the barn was set on fire to try to get him to run out. Booth's killer, a devout Christian known as Boston Corbett, went against direct orders to spare Booth's life so that he could be put on trial. Corbett claimed that he was instructed by God to rid the world of such evil. Booth knew too much. See, he was in on the conspiracy, right? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. He got him up. So, there are suggestions that Laura was arrested on the night of Lincoln's assassination, as she had something of a connection to Booth from his brother Edwin. Laura was quickly released when it was realized that she had nothing to do with the plot. Oh, Edwin, by the way, quickly disassociated himself from his deceased brother and more or less excommunicated him from the family after he died. As you do. Yeah. Oh, and he also went on to purchase the rights to our American cousin and continued to perform it. Oh, that's, oh, that's cold. (laughs) Hey, do you want to see the the play that the president was watching when my brother killed him? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and it's amazing because you think that, you know, like you you hear about uh, the descendants or the family members of Adolf Hitler, right? Changing Mm. your name. Mm-hmm. Now, lean into it. Oh yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. And and okay. and also, a former lover who saw great success with the play. Sure. <laughs> Needless to say, his production did not uh, see the same success as Laura's. Good. Good. <laughs> Laura's husband John Lutz died in 1869, and Laura almost never returned to the stage. She was, like I said, able to work as the manager of the Chestnut Street Theater in Philadelphia from September 1869 to March 1970. Her final stage performance was on July 4th, 1870. Did I say 19? Yeah, okay. Wow. (laughs) 
101 years. She made her final onstage performance July 4th, 1873, and died from complications of tuberculosis on November 4th of the same year. So I'll end this one with an excerpt regarding the cuff. The next day, as the news of the president's death gripped the city, Keene met with her husband's nephew at a nearby hotel and presented him with a bloodstained cuff from her dress. Preserved by family members, this memento of Keene's historic role on that tragic night was bequeathed to the Smithsonian in 1962. Oh, so every, every year at Thanksgiving, you know, you <laughs> cuff, and here it is, kids. Here it is. This is your birthright. Keen gave the rest you of the dress. Any royalties from our American cousin because you know the <laughs> guy that caused this bloodstained cuff, the one who has the theater named after him. Yeah, yeah, he's got it. Yep, what a cool dude. Keen gave the rest of the dress back to the dressmaker who made it, and was told to do with it what was necessary. And that is the story of Laura Keen. That's outstanding. Uh, you know, that's. You never hear about the women who who are the the the, the big players and um, yeah yeah amazing yeah well I mean uh, you know there is this trend right now and I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing to examine history again and find the stories from those who are underrepresented mm-hmm. and on one hand I go that's really great that that's happening on another hand I go some of those contributions were they didn't actually have much of a contribution. So you mean like stretching it just to, to, to yeah. be in, for inclusion's sake? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I always kind of enjoy hearing about Hrosvitha the nun in medieval times and how she wrote plays. And you're like, yeah, great. They were n- almost never performed. And if they were, they were performed uh, with her friends in the convent. And you're like, well, okay, so yeah, that's cool that that happened, but what did it do? <laughs> right, right. That, that would be like me and my buddies are, you know, if our Dungeons and Dragons campaigns were written down. <laughs> oh, we performed, you know, <laughs> longest running fantasy play mm-hmm. nobody ever saw. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, so that little idea about being able to rewrite history, I'm finding this as I'm going deeper into this podcast, getting different research methods and finding different uh, sources and everything. For this one, I'm like, okay, so there wasn't a lot published on Laura Keene. And definitely, I really couldn't find anything at, you know, our local small town library. Okay, so there's not much on her accomplishments. I found a lot of stuff online. But then I'm like, but let's talk about the Lincoln assassination. Everybody's written a book on that. Now, one such person who has written books on this is Bill O'Reilly. Ah, yes. I mentioned this yesterday in a text to you, and I'm like, uh, Bill O'Reilly is a prick. (laughs) And you're like, yes, I agree. And I'm like, I'm not telling you why. Now, apparently, he's written a lot of books on assassinations and just done some pretty significant research from what I can tell. But all of his books do have a ghostwriter. So it's like, Bill O'Reilly! And person who wrote the book. But this, this is... I, I, I cannot figure out what O'Reilly is trying to do here other than make sure that history was going to be preserved the way it was written. Or preserved the way he wanted yeah. it. To yes, be. yes. 
Yeah. So here's his account of what happened in the box seat when Laura got there. Sure. Based on several primary sources. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and just see how he tries to connect different pieces of research together that don't make sense. Keen lifts the president's head into her lap and calmly strokes his face. Before becoming an actress, she worked for a time as a restorer of old paintings. So she is more than familiar with the world of art and sculpture. She knows that this moment is Michelangelo's Pieta come to life with her as Mary and Lincoln as Christ. Yeah, because that's what she's thinking in this yep. moment. Right and at that like, moment, she's a brain like inside of his head. Yeah, this is Michelangelo. Look at this. Him. This is my opportunity to be the Virgin Mary. Okay, mm -hmm. he goes on. <clears throat> Surrounded on all sides by what can only be described as anarchy, Laura Keene nurtures the dying man. Here it comes. The war years have been hard on her. Drink has made her face puffy. And the constant wartime barnstorming has done little to stop her slowly declining popularity. The chestnut-eyed actress with the long auburn hair knows that this moment will put her name in papers around the world. So there is more than a touch of self-indulgence in her actions. But Laura Keene is not maudlin or the slightest bit dramatic as Lincoln's blood and brains soak into the lap of her dress. Like everyone else in the state box, she is stunned. Just a few minutes before, the President of the United States had been a vibrant and larger-than-life presence. Now everything has changed. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Bill. Like, like, wait, like literally every other source... There was nothing that said, well, she was declining in popularity and she saw the she saw this as an opportunity to, you know, advance herself once more. I'm like, no. Doc that a former Fox <laughs> News personality undersold the accomplishments accomplishments of a woman. Right? right, right. And and oh, and also commented on her appearance. Yeah, well, yes, of course. <laughs> Does he does he say anything about her bathroom habits? Maybe her useful or mm. that's a deep cut on Bill O'Reilly. Check out his fiction, kids. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the only indication that I ever saw in any other reports was that after a thousand performances of our American cousin and the fact that she was in her mid thirties, she was like, you know, I probably shouldn't play the ingenue anymore. <laughs> declining popularity <laughs> no she was just a realist and went uh i'm not 19 anymore <laughs> and you know discount the fact that the woman's a millionaire right right several times over and and just continued to come up with ingenuity and and innovations and everything it just it blows my mind that Yes, she was there on one of the most significant moments in American history. But also, it just seems like everything that she did is an asterisk. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Invented the matinee. Yeah. In tour. That, that, that's your long-running show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here you reduced to a bloody cuff in the Smithsonian. Right. right? <laughs> that's it. Way to go, Bill. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is kind of indicative of that, that way to wash history in a certain light. But at the oh, same time... Nothing like mine. I mean, she wasn't as popular as I was. <laughs> but even still, you know, like, he wouldn't be the only one. And, I mean, her, her contributions were obviously significant. It's mm -hmm. just unfortunate that she just got tied to this one thing. 
Could you imagine? Oh, you know. Oh, I, I was gonna say though, at least at least they got the box office receipts. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you, you know, you got you got their ticket money. <laughs> so I went to a play the other night, and it was okay. And then the president got shot, and it really ruined my evening. I demand a refund. <laughs> have you have you seen that uh the, the that sketch comedy show, The Whitest Kids You Know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're, they've got that great skit about Lincoln at the theater and, and the actor, you know, or him, him just heckling. You know, John yeah. Wilkes is the actor, and that's, you know, the reason why he heckles him. Hey, acty, acty. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I'll just uh, go ahead and, and end it with this. Uh, one of my, uh, 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 another colleague I had here in Sheridan uh, always used to just joke when things were just kind of falling apart. You just look at me and go, yes, but Mrs. Lincoln, what did you think of the play? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a story. God, I love this story. Yeah. Just another one of those snippets of history that you're like, are you kidding me? This happened. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You know, I mean, and everybody hears about uh, about the assassination and the fact that it happened at, at the play and they hear about John Wilkes Booth. But yeah, thank you for that great story mm-hmm. and and should be told i mean you know like you said we hear about people like gower champion and hal prince and rogers and hammerstein rogers and hart and uh you know you could even go back as far as like you know ziegfeld yeah. uh but here's a woman 70 years before he even got started just going well i see some opportunity here this is an idea and she wasn't vain about it. She wasn't, you know, self-aggrandizing. She just went, this is my business. And I, uh, if, I think I know what I'm doing. Yeah. That's outstanding. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Zach, thank you for joining me for this one. I, <laughs> I didn't know if you'd know who Laura was right away, but I loved seeing those revelations of, oh, my God, this is where we're going. This is what we're yeah, talking about today. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the, the minute you started talking, uh, you know, the booth, the booth connection kind of mm-hmm. led into it. But the minute you started talking about the, the transplanted uh, British play, I was like, yep, that's where we're going. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I didn't bring down your day too much. <laughs> the assassination of Lincoln does hit me. Hit me. It's, it's, it's fresh. Yeah. Yeah, just like it happened yesterday. Mm. I still well, think she needs her own theater. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's the biggest crime here. You know, aside from the, 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 the death of a president, the fact that this woman doesn't put her name on, on something in, in New criminal. And, and the uh, death of a president is a side note. <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, thanks for joining me on this one. This has been another episode of Euripides Humanities. And my listeners, I will see you at intermission. Hey friends, this is your host Aaron Odom coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode and if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater, that's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website www.tridenttheater.com Once again, this is Aaron Odom and we try to get a new episode out every two weeks so hope to see you again in a fortnight